Hi, I'm Amanda Johns. And I'm Ryan Lynch. And this is our weekly podcast, Worth the Work. A quirky and insightful look into the world of therapy with topics that matter to you. Let's get started. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Amanda. So, what are we what are we doing today? Well, September is National Recovery Month, so okay. I figured we could talk about addiction today. Okay, that I mean, I'm up for it. I'm here for it. Okay, so let's jump right in. So, what is addiction? How would you define it? Okay, so the American Society of Addiction Medicine um, has its own definition, and it's one that that we sort of align with. And I'm going to I'm going to tell you what the actual technical definition is and then maybe we can pull it out a little bit and put it right. more in like normal layman's speak. terms. Right. Yes. So basically the American Society of Addiction Medicine um, says that it's a primary chronic disease of the brain reward motivation memory and related circuitry. Say what now? Yeah, that's there's going to be a test after. <laughs> I wasn't taking notes. So basically, the, the the new definition of addiction or the most accepted, most widely accepted definition of addiction is that it's a chronic disease. Um, it, it is this cycle of relapse and remission, just like any other chronic disease that someone would experience. Um, and, and somebody who's experiencing this disease really does struggle with the ability to consistently um, abstain or not use substances or whatever it is that that their addiction is. Um, They really struggle to and have like impairment in the ability to control their behavior. They have cravings. Um, they, They really don't have the ability to all the time understand um, how significant their problem is or to the degree to which it impacts um, others. Uh, And then there's also this piece of having sort of like emotional dysregulation, which basically means they struggle to regulate their emotions. Okay. So what you're saying is basically that addiction is a chronic disease that involves a cycle of relapse and remission. Correct. Well, you know, what I like about that is that it does it doesn't specify specifically like drugs or alcohol, because I think when we hear the word addiction, most people's mind jumps to the idea of substance use of some kind. Right. And while that's totally valid and in probably the most prevalent form of addiction, there's many different types. So many different types. So what kind of types are there? So we got, you know, drug addiction. So some kind of substance. Mm -hmm. Which includes um, alcohol. Which also includes alcohol. And marijuana. Mm -hmm. Very true. Um, Then we also have something like porn or sex addiction. Or shopping. Or shopping. Food. Food. (laughs) So many. Basically, if it's something you can do compulsively, Mm because there's even people who work too much and work or... or accolades becomes an addiction. It becomes mm-hmm. an addiction to have people tell you how good you are sometimes mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And and I think in one of the important things is we're going to – today we're going to talk mostly about substance addiction, but we're not going to be exclusive. However, something like the porn and sex addiction are very unique, so we're going to actually uh, – 
bring that up in another separate topic right. down the road. So and, prepare yourself. And for to that. be fair, most of what we're talking about falls into symptoms and behaviors that are associated with those things as well. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so go ahead, Ryan. <laughs> now that you've undermined everything I said. <laughs> no, I did not. Let's talk about <laughs> triggers. So okay. what is a trigger? Yeah. So a trigger is anything that causes somebody to think about using a substance or think, uh, have an emotional response come up. Um, it's almost like you hear people all the time on the internet saying I'm triggered, or you see the word trigger warning. And a lot of people are like, well, okay, well, what does that mean? So at the very base, it means something happens that causes you to think about something else. Mm -hmm. um, typically, it's something negative, um, but you can have happy memories triggered as well. Um, if I'm walking along the beach and I see a seashell, and the last time I remember going um, and looking for shells was with my grandmother, and it was a good, positive experience, then when I see those seashells, I'm going to be triggered to think of my grandmother. On the opposing end, if something really horrific happened to me and I'm, you know, walking down the street and I notice something that reminds me of that horrific event, then I'm going to be triggered to think about that, that, that actual, um, that event. So at the, the very base sense, that's what a trigger is, is it's something that causes you to think about something else. And it's a very brain driven thing. Um, it's very automatic. Well, and, and I, I think it's one thing that's worth pointing out here too, is that, Triggers are very unique to each individual. Right. If let's say you and I both have the exact same addiction, we would not necessarily be triggered by the same things. Right. You know, for me, it could be a certain thing. And for you, you could see or experience that same event or, or whatever it is and not have that same desire. Well, and the funny thing is, and the thing that a lot of people don't understand is that positive things can be triggers for use as well. Um, and that boils down to, for some individuals, feeling happy or, or feeling joy is super uncomfortable. And, and there's fears and, and some negative memories that go along with those feelings. And that can trigger somebody to want to act out in their addiction as well. Mm -hmm. So I think that's important. And yeah. And the interesting thing is, is the brain really is a big part of why this happens. To go scientific for a second, um, there's two parts of your brain, the hippocampus and the amygdala. Um, and the hippocampus is the part of your brain that like stores all this information. It's like the librarian of the brain. I don't I don't know if you remember when you were a kid. I know when I was a kid, you had like the Dewey Decimal System where you pulled out the cards at the library and you could flip through the cards and pull out like the cards. How old are you? I'm not that old. I'm just kidding. I <laughs> I had that too. How old yeah. am I? <laughs> so so basically, that's what the hippocampus is. Is it's the the card collection of the the brain, you pull a card out, you go find the book or, you know, in the brain, you find the memory. Um, and the amygdala is the part of our brain that's like the gatekeeper. It sort of um, warns the brain when there's a threat happening. And its job is literally to keep us safe by alerting us. And so it's what causes us to do that fight, flight or freeze response and gets us ready to act. The problem is that the amygdala is not super good at determining when there's a real threat versus a perceived threat versus just a memory that's come up and is causing us to believe at this moment that we are being threatened. Well, that takes me back to the other week when we did anxiety and kind of the same thing. A lot of times we have anxiety about things that don't necessarily you know, we have that reaction, that fight, flight, or freeze about something that doesn't necessarily 
need that, right. but we do. Right. And and the interesting thing, too, is that the hippocampus, when we're feeling threatened, it also doesn't do a great job. It's like the librarian that, like, didn't finish library school. And so she kind of understands. Is that the official term? <laughs> she kind of understands the Dewey Decimal System, but she doesn't always understand how to put them in order. Uh, so, you know, the hippocampus does a great job of remembering, but it sometimes forgets to like tag the memories with time and place. So, you know, the amygdala is like, oh my gosh, this thing is happening. The hippocampus goes, oh my gosh, it's happening now because it has no reference to time or place. Because when we're sort of in this trauma space, um, there's all sorts of, of things happening in our bodies, adrenaline, cortisol, all of these things that are happening that cause us to feel threatened. Um, and we don't really go into like the thinking part of our brain that, you know, puts time in place. That was a lot. I'm totally. That was a lot. <laughs> I, I told you guys before, I absolutely am in love with the brain. I could talk about the brain for hours. My Dewey Decimal System is a little out of order right now. So <laughs> please bear with me. Well, and, you know, it's interesting, um, you know, kind of going off of the the triggers i mean well i think we gave the overarching thing but can we maybe give some examples of what might be a trigger for somebody yeah so again you had said before that it can vary for each person um some general well agreed upon triggers for a lot of people are things like payday having cash in your pocket or your purse having a 24-hour banking card so if you're catching my drift it's like easy access to money which mm -hmm. allows you to easily engage in the high-risk behavior, um, having contact or interaction with the person who provides you the drugs. Um, for some people, it being the weekend, um, nighttime. Um, some of my clients used to joke, if it's a day that ends in Y, that's a trigger. Um, and, and it's funny to say because we were in the world of addiction, working with people who were in addiction. Mm -hmm. But it's sad to think yeah. that people might be literally struggling every day just to get through the day. But that is the reality. And and I remember a lot of of my clients used to um, talk about how summer itself was yeah. uh, like a nice day. Like right. they it it very much becomes a ritual when we're talking about using and and again we're we're specifically talking about drugs and alcohol here, but a lot of this really applies to almost any right. addiction. Well, and even family events. Mm -hmm. Family events can be a trigger. Um, you know, family can be family a trigger. <laughs> can be a trigger. Finding, going, and cleaning out your room, and finding the tools that you used to mm -hmm. use in order to engage in your addiction behavior. Mm -hmm. And think about somebody if you struggle with, let's say, alcohol. Right. Think about the way society reacts to alcohol. You know, I. You know, you watch a football game, there's ad upon ad upon ad, you know, there's every kind of piece of society kind yeah. of like encourages, quote unquote, drinking, you know, so it kind of makes it really hard if that's something you struggle with to have it in your face, in your face. every day and so readily available. Yeah. You know, it's it's so easy now to just go into a store to buy chicken and you look to your left and there's the alcohol. That's hard. Oh, Pennsylvania. <laughs> I mean, it's in Florida, too. Pennsylvania was like one of the later states to do that change. But but yeah, it, it, there's easy access to mm -hmm. a substance that causes problems for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. 
And that kind of brings us into the the next piece is kind of talking about I, I want to say why people use, but maybe that's not quite the right term. But you know, what are some of the things, what are some of the quote unquote benefits of using? Because it, it clearly it's doing something right. for you, right? We typically don't engage in behaviors that aren't serving us some sort of purpose. Correct. So, you know, for a lot of people, so there's a really big correlation between PTSD and substance use. So a study by the VA it found that 46.4% of people with PTSD also meet the criteria for substance use disorder. Yeah. I mean, that's half of the people with PAT, excuse me, PTSD. Um, that's kind of shocking. You know, that's a lot. I mean, because PTSD is something that has, uh, we'll be doing an episode on that as well. Hint, hint. <laughs> but, you know, that's a, a diagnosis that has been around for not that long, but really it's been around for a long time, you know. Um, I think it's fascinating to kind of look at that, you know, um, the study also found that women, um, who had PTSD were two point, basically 2.5 times more likely to misuse alcohol and men, uh, with PTSD were two times more likely. So it's just kind of a pretty significant number. This is not like, you know, one or 2% or, or anything yeah, like that. Lot. That's a big number. And if you think about, you know, the recent Me Too movement mm -hmm. and how many women came out and identified that they had experienced some sort of trauma, um, there's a lot. Mm -hmm. Like there are a lot. I don't know a single woman in my life, really, who hasn't experienced some sort of trauma. And so if you think about that, you think about the number of women who've experienced something and then that rate of 2.4 times more likely to mm -hmm. utilize alcohol. Yeah. And in, in a way that's not healthy. Yeah. And I saw an interview. I'm not going to go into all the details because, I, you know, we're not trying to be political on the show. But I saw an interview of somebody on um, TV yesterday and it was this girl talking about when she was 15, this person interacted with her and made comments about her body and stuff like that. And she talks about how she doesn't remember a lot of it. I mean, her father was there as well. And that's where most of the story comes from. She said she doesn't really remember a lot of it because she just became so desensitized. I can't yeah. say that word about the way people talk ab about women. Yeah. Right. And I know we're getting off topic here, so let's bring but it back it, but in. But it all, it all correlates mm -hmm. because then it brings us back to, well, what you originally said, well, what is the reason or what is a reason that a lot of people mm -hmm. do utilize substances? Right. And that's to dissociate. I yep. mean, at the very core of it, it's, it's to stop feeling. It's to mm -hmm. stop seeing the flashbacks. It's to stop having the memories, if even for a short period of time. And, and you know, people who use substances aren't dumb. They're right. very well aware of the fact that as soon as that substance wears off, they're going to be right back in that mm -hmm. feeling. And so that's where you have a tendency to get the chronic use. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and then you like, not only do you have the, the 
the changes in the brain that happen due to the substance and that, you know, reward part of your brain that goes, wow, I'm like so excited to have this thing that you're giving me that's making me feel so good. And then, you know, the low comes later and your brain's like, wait, I want that again because nothing else makes me feel that good. Right. And so you have like the chemical process that happens. And then you have the very real fact that you get to leave the difficult parts of Mm -hmm. life. You, you don't, don't have, have to think about it. You yeah. have to be present for it. Yeah, you don't have yeah. to have emotion. Yeah. And and I think that is what's really kind of insidious about it because it is very it, – it, we're, we're going to talk about coping skills in a few minutes, but using is a coping skill. It's a yeah. really unhealthy one, but it's still a coping skill because it's something you're doing to deal with what's going right. on. Right, and until we replace – the mm-hmm. unhealthy coping skills with healthy coping skills, it's going to continue being the go-to. Absolutely. Because it's, it's the one that does the best, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And a lot of people, you know, end up kind of chasing that first high, you know, because yeah. like, you know, a lot of, uh, of addicts I've talked to have said that they, you know, that first, they're just constantly chasing it because you can never quite get it as good as you got it that first time. It just becomes this incessant chasing, right? And that's how you get to use more and more. Mm-hmm. And obviously, we're in the middle of this opiate epidemic right now in this country. And, you know, I don't know how many clients I had who had never used drugs before they picked up, you know, opiates by, by maybe a car accident or right. something like that. Um, and then doctors, whether they knew or not, we're not going to get into, but once it became clear the person was addicted to it. A lot of people were cut off immediately. So then they go to buying on the street, things like that. And that's not a sustainable kind of path. And I think it's important to say too, that people with substance use disorder didn't grow up going, Oh boy, by the way, when I grow up, I want to be, you know, struggling with substance use disorder. That's, that's not something that that Mickey Mouse. I don't even know who that was. That was the people that, believe people choose to you know and and i hear a lot well you know they had the dare program or they knew what was going to happen to them when they used these substances great i'm i'm so glad that they knew what was going to happen to them awesome so because they did they now deserve a life of this no Mm -hmm. like they deserve to be helped they deserve to live they deserve to Mm -hmm. have happiness and peace and you know any one of us could could become part of this. And, you know, I, I heard a story just the other day. They were talking about the criminalization and the way, like, per capita, the United States has the most people in prison right now. Right. And 40% of them are for some sort of drug offense. Yeah. And that's just... A lot of a minor. Yeah, very minor. That could have um, really benefited from some sort of interaction with a therapist or counseling or treatment instead of right. the prison system. And, oh, I'm going to get off my bandwagon. Yes. No, no, no. <laughs> it's a valid point. I mean, and we're not even going to touch the issue of race and, and criminalization. That is its own topic. That is a whole other topic we will get to. But... You know, a lot of these people are in prison for, you know, using marijuana or even using other substances. Or just having marijuana in their, their, on their person. Yeah. And maybe they're addicted to it. Maybe they're not. But the whole idea of it is like, we're, we're criminalizing them for having an addiction. I mean, like. having a disease. Yeah. Do we do the same for people who are addicted to shopping? Right. No. I mean, 
if they steal. But well, okay. Too, yeah. Well, that's a whole different that's a whole scenario. different. I just didn't want somebody commenting, but they might steal. Because everybody always has something That's to called say. kleptomania, and that's a whole other story. <laughs> but, you know, then I, I look at, uh, well, first of all, a lot of the world does not criminalize it nearly Correct. like we do. But in uh, Portugal is a very fascinating study in this because they, a couple years ago, I don't have the exact year, I'll have to look it up. But a couple years ago, they basically decriminalized all drugs. And the money that they spent towards criminalizing people for drugs and stuff, they turned to treatment, right? And they did not see a massive spike in use of, of illicit drugs or anything. It actually went dramatically down. Yeah. And and a lot of that is because, you know, when you criminalize it, then there's it's harder to ask for help because who do you ask? Because there's a chance they could, you know, call the cops on you right. or, or turn you in or anything like that. So it's just very it's interesting. It's a lot. Yeah. It's, it's a lot. There's so much more that we could cover in this Yeah, topic. this could be a, like an eight-hour podcast. Maybe but we'll do a seminar at some point. Maybe. <laughs> That's a scary word. Okay. So let's talk about... Coping skills? Yeah, that's what I was going to do. <laughs> Sorry, my co-host, as you can't see, makes funny faces at times. Like, what are you talking about? So coping skills. So what is a coping skill? A coping skill is something that we do to help us get through something else or help us mm -hmm. to deal with something else. And I think, you know, people are always like, oh, I don't know what to do. I don't I don't have any coping skills. And that you may feel that way. But in reality, like anything can be a coping skill. Um, it can be something like soaking in the bathtub, right? I love my baths. So, yes. I prefer showers, but yes, I, <laughs> I, you know, fair. Um, like laying out in the sun, getting some sun, because we all know like that the vitamin D we get mm -hmm. from the sun can be very rejuvenative. Is that the word? Is that me saying that right? I don't know what you're trying to say. Neither do I. So let's move. Yes, that's okay. what I was trying to say. Um, But I mean, like taking a walk, taking a walk. Absolutely. Reading a book. Doing a craft. Um, meditating. Having sex. I mean, like any as of these. As long as you don't have a sex addiction. Uh, yes. Okay. That, and that's why that's a separate issue. But yeah, I mean, like really anything that can bring you comfort can be an addict, can be a uh, coping, coping skill, skill. <laughs> not an addiction. Um, and, and like, because I have, you know. Just a list here that I have of almost 200 different coping skills. Yeah, you can go do a, go a Google search, yeah. coping skills, yeah. and you can get your own list, post on your wall. I mean, mm -hmm. and the reality of it is, is people, even people who aren't struggling with substance use disorder can benefit from having Absolutely. a list of coping skills. I mean, basically, a coping skill is self-care, yeah. right? I mean, and that's something that we preach a lot and, you know... I think the important also thing is like what works for me as a coping skill might not work for you. Clearly and that's okay. Like showers. I like showers. I like baths. Well, you know, ain't nobody got that kind of time. Candles. Um, <laughs> I can just picture it in my head. It's hilarious. Um, so <laughs> that sounded worse than a minute. So we're going to move on, but really like coping skills are, can be anything. So it's important to 
you know. Develop them. Yes. Thank you. Get some tools in your toolbox. Yes. Yes. So let's talk about signs of relapse because there are things that, that people can kind of know ahead of time that mm-hmm. say, hey, I might be headed in a direction that I don't want to go into. So I have a list here. And I'm just going to sort of like go through them. Um, I'm not going to explain them because I think most of them are sort of self-explanatory. But if I get to one and I'm like, then I will. So <laughs> exhaustion uh, can be a symptom. Dishonesty. Suddenly there's lots of lying. Impatience. Um, everything's got to get done right now. Uh, more arguing than usual. More ridiculous points of view. Um, depression, frustration, self-pity, that whole like martyrdom, why does this always happen to me kind of mentality, cockiness. I always say that the worst thing you can do is say, I've got this. Mm -hmm. I'm good. I don't need anybody. Um, Complacency, sort of like um, just getting the miz. Um, I'm just just okay with what things are. Meh. That's complacency. (laughs) Um, with or without the voice (laughs) uh expecting too much from others um letting up on the things that help you to 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 stay sober so um if you go to church or you pray meditation doing your inventories um use of of chemicals you may not relapse to you may not have relapsed to yet to the the substance that your primary substance of use, but you may have already started sort of relapsing into other substances. Um, if if you're struggling, suddenly you notice that you want too much. Um, you just happiness is not having what you want, but wanting what you have. So it's like it's it's the I don't understand why they can have it, but I can't. Sort of thinking, um, forgetting to be grateful. It's really important that if you're in a space where it's um, struggling to remember where you were and how you got to where you are, um, that can be a really big sign. Um, the it can't happens to me and then... The what? The, the, it can't happen to me. The mm. whole like, oh, it's not going to happen to me. Right. I'm, I'm good. I'm, it goes right back to the cockiness piece. Well, and I think what all of these really are saying is that the, the relapse happens long before you oh ever pick up the substance yeah. or start down that we path. We talk about like, making a reservation. Mm-hmm. And what that means is, is that I haven't decided when I'm going to use yet, but I haven't made the decision that I'm not going to use. Right. It's not always a conscious thought. I mean, sometimes it is, but... It's not like you're deciding, you know, that I'm definitely going to right. use. At that point, you've already probably participated in 30 different behaviors that have gotten That we've kind of point. talked about, yeah. right? So those are kind of like the warning signs to to keep an eye out for, for yourself or, or someone else. Yeah. So, um, you know, let's talk about addiction and family. Yeah. So I'm sure that we have a lot of family listening right now who are finding themselves in a place of frustration because a lot of times people say, but I love them. I don't understand why they won't change. I love them. I I want to be in relationship with them. I've done everything for them. I don't understand why they won't change. And I, I just think that like the most important statement that I can make to a family member is keep loving. Mm-hmm. Um, don't turn your back. Don't run away. Um, there's, there's this really good um, TED Talk about the attachment piece of addiction, and I can't remember the name of it right Johann now. Johan Eri is the guy. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can post a link to that on our social media as well. Um, however, you know, you can love somebody 
and still not get the change that you want. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I I really think it's important for families to understand that that piece of it. Um, Somebody who's in active addiction struggles to feel that attachment. They Mm -hmm. struggle to feel that relationship. Um, They have formed an attachment and a love with the substance. And I know that that sucks. I know that it's not what we want to hear. But the reality of it is, is that their brain has literally been chemically reprogrammed to think that the substance is the only thing that they need in life and the only thing that will provide them the satisfaction. And so the goal of therapy is to get somebody to the space of abstinence so that they can start to become attached to people again um, and they can start to feel... Um, feel that connection to people mm-hmm. uh, in a safe way. Yeah. And I want to go back to a, a piece you said about, you know, when you're talking to the family and to never stop loving them. Yeah. That also, I think it, in a, it needs to be said with boundaries. Correct. Love with boundaries. Right. Yeah. So let's clarify that yeah. a little bit. No, thanks. Love with boundaries mm-hmm. is an important statement. Right. So like if the let's say it's your child and they're living with you and they continually to, you know, whatever it is they're using in your home, not following any rules you set. And you're like, I can't do this anymore. I have to kick them out. As as hard as that is, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes that has to happen. Right. And that's a frustrating and we have to set limits. We have to know when it's okay to say no. Because at the end of the day, you also have to take care of yourself right. and your own mental and physical well-being. Somebody once said to me is you can't allow one person to sink the whole ship. Right. Right. So, no, you know, most households, there's more than just the person in addiction and the person who's mm-hmm. loving the person who's struggling with substance use disorder. And so, you know, you have to take into consideration how the behavior and the impact of the behavior is on everyone in that household, the family, the kids, um, the animals even. You know, you don't want to be in the space of getting evicted. You you need to be able to take care of yourself. And it is okay to say no. Yeah. It's okay to say you can't live in my house. Yeah. There are resources. There are tons of resources available. And, you know, one of the things you're going to get with somebody in addiction is a lot of guilt and, you know, blaming you for all the different things. And at the end of the day, that's that's the addiction talking. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think because we are in, you know, the the height of the opioid epidemic and whatnot, we do have to talk about something called Narcan. Yeah. So, Amanda, what is Narcan? So Narcan is a medication that can be used to um, pull opiates off of the receptor sites Mm -hmm. and to pull somebody out of an overdose. Right. So basically, if someone is overdosing, um, what happens, especially with opiates, is that they basically are going to sleep and dying and never, you know, obviously never waking up. Like their breathing kind of gets to the point where it's so low, everything just kind of shuts down. Um, and what Narcan can do is, like she said, pull the that the opiates off of those receptor sites and help revive somebody. So, you know, I think that's – and Narcan is something you can get at any kind of – where can you get it? Let's ask you that. 
you can get it at a pharmacy. There's actually a uh, nationwide, or at least I know in the state of Pennsylvania, but I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure it's nationwide, um, open script mm-hmm. that a doctor wrote that anybody who's anybody can walk into a pharmacy and request um, that they get Narcan. I yeah. keep it in my car. Um, the reality of it is, is you likely will never use it on yourself, right. but there's a good chance that you might have to use it on somebody else. Mm-hmm. So, and that's something that, you know, it, what it is, is it is a basically a nasal spray um, that you spray up the nostril and, you know, it can take more than one to revive right. somebody, unfortunately. Um, that's something that um, as drugs and we could do a whole episode on opiates are becoming more and more powerful. That is something that is, you know, Narcan starting to reach the point where it, it can't help. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I just want to provide a resource at least, um, well, two resources. So there's um, the Council of Southeast Pennsylvania is here in obviously Southeast Pennsylvania. um, And they are a good resource for um, programs. They do, they actually will teach about Narcan. Um, they have trainings that they do. They hand it out at times. So the that's a really good resource for people who are in our area. On a more global uh, sort of need, um, there's something called SAMHSA, which is, which is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. And that's the government branch of um, issues of substance use disorder. And they actually have a website that you can go to. And there's tons and tons and tons of research, tons of materials, tons of consumable materials that you can print and even hand out. Um, And so those are just two really good resources Mm -hmm. that you can go to to find out information. And there's tons of excellent TED Talks on the issue of substance use disorder. Yeah. So if you or someone you know is struggling or, you know, don't hesitate to, to reach out for resources and try to find that for them or for yourself, you know, that's an important thing. If someone, you know, is using and, you know, you're struggling with how to deal with it, it's it's important for you to find resources for yourself to have that outlet. Yeah. And if if anybody who's listening today is struggling, reach out. I mean, Mm -hmm. I know that's the, the, like the cliche thing to say is tell somebody, but, but really Mm -hmm. like, if you think that you're headed in that direction, then you probably are. Um, and your brain is going to tell you to keep it quiet. Your brain is going to tell you to introvert. Your your brain is going to tell you to hide. I want you to fight that. I want you to ride the wave out and and seek the support that you need. Tell somebody. Yeah, I think that's very valid. All right, folks. Um, so that is it for us today. So um, again, why don't you tell them about our instant. Language is still (laughs) not my forte. Thank you. Um, So we have an Insta, which is that's Instagram Instagram for like people people like like Ryan, which is worth the work underscore, and then we have a Facebook page which is um, worth the work. I think you can just Google worth the or you know look up worth the work in Facebook, but I'm still not clear. This is where my deficit shows. I think it's Amanda and Ryan worth the work is the actual Facebook line, um, but we do have a Facebook page as well. And then we have our website worththework.net where you can learn a little bit more about myself and Ryan. And I just want to give a shout out to that 
person in France. We we see you that you're listening, and we think it's amazing that you're in France listening to us. It's super cool. We appreciate the support from overseas. All right, folks. <laughs> well, that's it for us. You all have a great week. Bye.